0: Bible, turn to the book of Philippians, if you would. We're continuing our series entitled Magnify Jesus. We're actually winding this thing down. Uh, we're down to the last uh, passages uh, in uh, in Philippians. We've just been going verse by verse through the book of Philippians uh, over the last, um, man, year and a half, beginning of 2000, uh, uh, 2020, we started... Uh, going through the book of Philippians. And so if you miss anything, you can always get caught up on our website or through the Hui Kala app. I would encourage you, uh, if, you're, if you're new to Hui Kala, download the Hui Kala app, because if you do that, you can op- open up today's series, Magnify Jesus, it's there on the home page of the app. Click on today's message, and then there's a button that says fill in notes. That'll open up a web browser, it'll show you every verse we're going to take a look at today, all of our main points, all of our sub points, you can take notes through there, you can email it to yourself when you're done. Uh, and so I would encourage you, if you haven't yet downloaded the Hui Kala app, do that. And so uh, that's a great way that you can stay caught up on what we have. That way, if you miss any messages, you can always listen to them on the Hui Kala app uh, as well. And so uh, I would highly encourage you to do that. But we find ourselves in Philippians 4, 9. If you think of it this way, as, as Paul's writing a letter to the church at Philippi, uh, the church at Philippi was a church that Paul started from scratch uh, with, on his second missionary journey. It was his first uh, church plant in uh, Europe. Uh, this would have been southern Greece, uh, the, the city of Philippi. He starts a church from scratch, Uh, He pastors it for probably about 18 months or so, best we can tell. Then he moves on for about 10 years or so, plants other churches, does some other work. And then he finds himself in prison. And instead of just sitting in prison, uh, marking the the tick marks on the, the wall, he decides to be useful and write letters. And this is one of Paul's prison letters. We sometimes refer to these as prison epistles. And so he writes back to a church that he had pastored before. And if you read through the New Testament, as Paul writes letters, it's usually to correct some stuff that have gone wrong. Uh, the church at Corinth had a gang of problems that got, uh, Paul had to basically write four different letters. We only have two of those uh, in the New Testament, but wrote letters saying, guys, get your act together and knock it off. He wrote to, to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, uh, probably about five or so churches that we know of that he wrote to the book of Galatians to say, hey, you got some false teaching, you need to fix it. You've really messed up the gospel, get it back on track. The... the uh, church at Thessalonica, he wrote two different letters to them to challenge them and encourage them. The the book of Philippians stands apart. It's sometimes referred to as Paul's letter of joy. There's not any correction in here. He's not rebuking anybody. There's no false teaching. There's not really any problems at the church. There might be a couple of ladies that had some issues uh, beginning of chapter four that he says, hey guys, get on the same page and just get back to doing what you do best. But he's just encouraging them, hey, keep up the good work, stay after it, continue in the gospel, you've done so well. And then kind of as he's wrapping his letter up, he challenges them with a few final things. That's where we find ourselves here today. Now, if you were to trace down uh, chapter number four here, uh, as we've been reading through it, uh, uh, verse number four, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Hey, in everything that you're going through, you should be able to praise God for. He gets to verse number five, and he gives us some critical instruction. Now, we've already gone over these verses, so I'm just going to kind of give you a quick overview because we've already discussed these at length. Verse number five, he says, if there's any drama in your life, don't worry about it. But here's what you should do. You should pray. You should praise God already in advance and let God know what you need. And then here's what's going to happen. God's going to give you a peace that passes all understanding that is going to protect your hearts and your minds and keep you focused on Jesus Christ. That's a promise. So again, this is, this is leading up to where we're going today, okay? Okay. Because he says, if you got stuff going on, just pray about it, give it to God, don't worry, and you'll get peace like you've never known before. Then he gets down to uh, verse n- number uh, 8 and says, Now, if you want to protect your peace that God gives you, you got to change your thinking. you got to have a new perspective. And again, review, we spent two weeks here in verse number 8. Stop thinking about negative things and focus on the things that are true, the things that are honorable, the things that are right before God, the things that are attractive to God. Think on those things. And then he says, if you want to continue keeping this peace that God's given you, then we get to verse number nine. Here's the problem oftentimes when we read the Bible or we hear the Bible preached. We forget about the context. You have to read the Bible in context. You can't just grab one verse out and say, hey, look at what this one verse says. We'll take a look at uh, James uh, tonight where the Bible says that can a man be saved by faith alone, question mark? We'll take a look at how that verse has been taken out of context to say something that it never intended to say. So when we read the Bible, especially verse number nine, we gotta understand where this is coming from. Paul tells them in verse number nine, those things which ye have both learned and received, and heard, and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. I, I don't know about you, but I'm really good at starting stuff. Like, I get a new project, I get something I'm fired up about, I buy all the supplies, I get things ready. Man, If I think about a construction project that I want to do, I'll go to Home Depot, I'll get me some drywall, I'll get me some uh, new, brand new box of screws, I'll get some two by fours, and I'll be thinking in my mind how all this is going to work and if any of you guys are like me you go to home depot and you get your supplies and you realize i think i need a new cordless drill because the one that i have just just doesn't have the pump that it used to and i should buy the extra battery pack and the fast charging kit that goes with it and if i'm getting the new battery for that i should get the reciprocating saw that goes with the new battery pack that i bought and before you know it you went to get a couple pieces of drywall and it's like seven hundred dollars And then you get, I'm going to start this project, and then you come home and you unload everything, and you think, well, probably not today. I'll get to that, like, tomorrow. And then like six months later, you're like, why can I buy all that drywall for? What was I going to do with that? For me, oftentimes I think to myself, I'm going to start journaling. You know, I hear people talk about how I wake up in the morning and I journal to God every day, my thoughts. And so I think, man, I'm going to do that. Well, how great would it be to pass on to my kids one day, like their dad's daily thoughts about God, Man, I'm going to do that. And so I'm going to start journaling. And it's no life, you go in my office, uh, in my cabinet, I have a stack of some really nice journals, some of them are leather bound. Some of them have my name engraved on the outside of them. Some of them are nice linen with some really fancy paper that was made just for using fountain pens on. And most of them have like the first two or three pages filled in. And after that, it's all blank. Because I'm awesome at starting stuff. <laughs> I really am. The problem comes with the finish, right? I've started uh, more diets and fitness programs and exercise routines that you can shake a stick at. I mean, I've, I've gotten after it. But the problem isn't with the start, anybody can start, the problem is with the finish. And Paul tells the church of Philippi, hey guys, you guys are doing a bang up job. Again, if you read the first four chapters of Philippians, he said, you guys are killing it, you're knocking it out of the park. Even towards the end of chapter number four, he's going to say, nobody has done what you've done. You guys are awesome. But if you want to take it up to the next level, here's what you have to do. You got to keep doing it. You got to stay after it. And what God has done here at Who We Call a Baptist Church in the last eight years is absolutely off the charts, phenomenal. What we've seen God do in just the last 18 months here in this church, unbelievable. But if we want to be a church that continues on and continues to be what God intended us to be, we got to follow God's guidelines for doing that. The theme of this passage of Scripture here is God's peace again and again and again. And sometimes we think of peace in terms of peace versus war. And peace being the absence of conflict. And I don't know about you, but there's not a lot of times in life where I have the absence of conflict. Either uh, between me and somebody else, or me in a particular situation, or even me with me, right? That's not the type of peace that God's talking about, the absence of conflict. When God talks about peace, when Paul writes about peace here, he's speaking of a calm that comes to your soul and your spirit knowing that God is in control. I can't explain it. That's what verse number seven says. It's a peace that passes understanding. Other people might look at me and say, you're crazy. You should totally be worried about this. But I'm not, because I know that God is in charge. I know that in the depths of my soul, if it is out of my control, it's 100% in God's control. And that brings peace. Now, do you want to keep that Peace then there's some things you got to do to maintain it. i mean, entitled today's message, The Pursuit of Spiritual Stability. Because that's what really peace is. It's stability. It's being able to come back to something that's consistent. I don't know about you, but the world that we live in today is wildly unstable. Wildly. Just from day to day. You hear things uh, on one day uh, that say, hey, our economy is roaring back, our economy is going well, jobs are up, people are looking to hire all over the place, there's a worker shortage because there's so much work and not enough people to do it. It's proof that the economy is roaring back. And you just got to flip over two stations and they're going to say, hyperinflation has overtaken America our economy is headed off the side of a cliff that will never recover the store shelves are going to be bare come Christmas. You won't be able to find uh, food anywhere, and then there begins to be this sense of panic. What, I, five minutes ago, I thought we were doing really, really well, and everybody's going to be flushed with cash this Christmas. What's true? I don't know. The last 18 months, the things that we get told about how long this is going to last or what we should do to take care of things, all wildly unstable. But this is nothing new. The world is an unstable place. So you and I must come back to a place that's always the same. That regardless of whether we're up or down or things are good or bad, this here is consistent. It's a foundation that we must build on. That regardless of what happens, the foundation itself is solid. We've got to drop our anchor someplace that is sure and steadfast. Regardless of what's going on, this here is solid. What is that place? That place is the person of Jesus Christ. What's that foundation? Foundation, get this, is obedience to the word of God. God's got a plan. Just do what he says. As you take a look at this passage this morning, it's important to understand that spiritual stability comes from knowing what to do and doing it consistently. You want to find peace in life? You want to find God's blessings in life? It's really simple. Do what God says. Well, Well, I know there's probably something on top of that. No, there's not. That's it. Because the Bible says the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord that your path has already been laid out, you just got to walk it. The problem comes with the, not the simplicity of the plan, but the execution of the plan. You say, well, that's too easy. It's a simple plan. It's difficult to obey the path. It's difficult to execute the plan, if you will. But that's where we find the peace that God offers. Again, if you take a look at verse number nine here, those things that you have both learned, received, and heard, and seen in me do, And the God of peace shall be with you. So Paul is saying, hey, you've examined my life and the things that you've seen me do. Do those. And the peace of God is going to be with you. Now, it's important to note at this point in biblical history, the Bible had not been completed yet. So Paul couldn't say to the church at Philippi, hey, guys, just like James was talking about in the book of James, you should go back and read that because they didn't have the book of James. He's writing to them on how to be solid Christians, how to live out their faith in a real tangible way, and they don't really have anything to go off of. Mind you, these are first-generation Christians who just have the Old Testament, so they don't really know what to do, and Paul says, hey, here's what you do. What you saw me do, what you heard about me, what you've experienced with me, what you've received from me, just do that. And everything else will work itself out. And so Paul's saying, hey, guys, you need help. And here's what I'm saying to you guys this morning. Guys, we need help. Biblical Christianity is impossible to do alone. You can't do this by yourself. You just can't. And again, through everything that the world's gone through in the last 20 months or so, it's been unique to see what different things uh, take place and different things transpire. And for us, last year for twelve weeks we had to go online only. It was the Longest twelve weeks of my life. I had to preach to a camera for twelve weeks. It was terrible. I didn't get to see people from my family for twelve weeks. So you didn't get to see your family? No, my family, my church family. Twelve weeks. I mean, Angela and I would get in the car some Sundays and just drive around and, and see people, and knock on the door and say hi, and drop stuff off for the kids and bring food to people because we wanted to see people. It was hard. You know why? Because Christianity wasn't supposed to be done alone. I remember when everything first started, and, and, you know, again, mind you, we didn't have a lot of information back then. The idea was that if you get this, you're probably going to die. And so everybody's taking ultra precautions and don't touch nobody, don't come near nobody. You need to be double-masked and double-gloved everywhere you go and wipe everything down and, and make sure that you're, like, spraying a sanitizer out in front of yourself before you walk through it and crazy stuff. And I remember it was probably, we were on probably like week four of that, no church services, no gathering of the church at all, seeing people on a computer screen through doing our Bible studies on Zoom, it was rotten. I remember one of our men, uh, Kirk Oberman, uh, Oberman's moved to, to Seattle to be close to family a few weeks ago, but uh, Kirk came by and he came by and he had a, a gator up around his, uh, his, his face and he had on a big, huge like rubber kitchen glove. And he walked in the front door, and he said, Pastor, I've missed you. And he reached out and shook my hand. I remember the feeling that I had of shaking another man's hand for the first time in weeks. It was life-giving. And let me just tell you this. I'm an introvert by nature. Like, I don't, I don't need necessarily to spend time around people. But that just identified to me how badly I need to be around other people. And then when we did get to gather back together with people, or people would stop by the church and everything, and it's like, stand back six feet, everybody's got their mask on, and they wave through a piece of glass and stuff like that. I remember it just being awkward. And I remember Ron Grundy stopped by to grab some, some gospel tracts to hand out to people in the neighborhood. And so I opened up the door, and I kind of stepped back, you know, I want to try to be respectful of everybody's space. and Ron, like, runs through the door and bear hugs me, and I was just like, ah! But... To hug another brother in Christ, it had been six weeks, eight weeks. It was life-giving. Why? Because we weren't created to do life alone. We weren't created to be Christians alone that God wants us to do this together with other people. And one of the gifts that Jesus has given to us is the church. It's a gift. Now, if you have never been a part of a healthy church before, if you've never experienced real church family before, this probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you that it would be a gift. People that come from a rigid religious structure think to themselves like, oh, church is just another thing I've got to do every week. Church is just another thing that takes time out of my calendar. Church keeps me from maybe being able to play golf on Sunday mornings with all the other guys from the office. Man, church keeps me from being able to go to that birthday party that I wanted to go through this weekend because it's scheduled it at 11 o'clock on Sunday. I'm like, church just gets in the way of stuff like that you have completely and totally missed the point of what the church is supposed to be the church is not a gathering place or a gathering time the church is a group of people who god has called out of this world to himself to develop a family that's the church and let me just tell you this you can't stop the church if you wanted to Because it's bigger than a meeting location, it's bigger than a meeting time. And so if you think that that church is just somewhere you go or something that you do, you've missed the point. Church is a family, it's highly relational. And let me tell you this, that is a gift that Jesus Christ has given to us. I received an e- email several weeks ago uh, from, I'm on a 1,001 email list, and so that's why if you email me, you might not get an immediate response back, and it's not personal. It's just I got tons of emails to go through, and I got an email from uh, this um, company that says, uh, read about our pilot online campus in New York, and I thought to myself, what does that even mean, an online campus, and so uh, I click on the video, and I start watching it, <laughs> and so. They start talking about this online platform that they have that's revolutionary and it takes their, their streaming service from one campus and pipes it out to the internet. And then the the idea is that people would watch it in their home and then on the side there's this chat bar where you can interact with the service and you can type in your comments and you can click a button that says like amen, and another button that says thumbs up and you can heart something if you like it and somebody's like reposting quotes from the message in the chat stream. And they're like, it's a brand new online church. And I was just like, ah, I'm gonna stop you right there. That's not church. Is that a technological platform that can cause preaching to go further? Sure, and I'm for that. I'm all for technology taking preaching and the gospel further, 100%. But please don't call that church. Because for 2,000 years, the church has been gathering together multiple times a week for the purpose of, of worshiping Jesus, growing in our faith, and building community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can't click that on a screen. That's not church. You say, well, you're an old fuddy-duddy that just doesn't like technology. No. I'm a biblicist that follows Jesus' definition of what the church is. That's a gift. That's something special that we have and so First Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 12, Paul speaks of the body of Christ, but he's talking about a physical body, for as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For one, by one spirit we're baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and be made all to drink in one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So just like our physical body has multiple parts that make it up, so the body of Christ has multiple parts that make it up, but we're all one body. That's a gift. Most of the times when the Bible speaks in the New Testament of the church is talking about a, a group of people that gather together weekly in the same place for the carrying out of, of the Great Commission, like what we do, a local New Testament church. But sometimes we find in the, the, the Bible, it speaks of the church in broader terms. We, we might call this the family of God. All those Christians who have been saved worldwide are part of a larger, called-out people Some people use the term universal church. I don't like that because it gives the idea that, like, I don't go to a local church. I'm part of the universal church, but everything happens in a small group in the local church. Discussion for another day. (laughs) But here's what I love about being a part of the body of Christ and the family of God at large. Wherever you go, you've got family. Wherever. Some folks just moved here from Oregon. Welcome to the family. Never met you before, brother. Brother. That's some friends that are visiting from North Carolina. Welcome, brother. Never met you before. Glad you're here today to worship Jesus with us. Wherever you go, you can always find family. I remember, two years I had gone. Uh, two years ago, I had traveled to Malaysia to with a, a friend uh, who attends our church uh, to visit over there. And uh, I remember it was a Wednesday night, I believe it was, and we were driving to a, a church service, and I was supposed to preach there. And so we're traveling, and we have a driver that's driving us. It's getting a little bit late there. His sun's gone down. And I hear over the loudspeaker the evening call to prayer. Malaysia is a Muslim country, and so the loudspeaker call to prayer, and people just start walking through the streets in like long robes and dudes with big, huge long beards. Uh, it's just like wow. And I'm sitting in the back of this car, and there are people that that when they hear the call to prayer, they literally put their car in park and get out and just walk to the the nearest mosque to pray. It's not like they're looking for a parking spot or stressed out because they're stuck in traffic. No, they just put it in parking, like get out and walk. And so you see all these people making their way to a mosque and we're kind of driving through this and people cutting in and out of our car and stuff like that. And I'm just ultra nervous. Like, hey, I'm a public school kid who from Kentucky, you know, like I ain't never seen stuff like this before in my life. And I'm just really nervous because I'm like, I don't fit here have all these people who are either of Asian descent or a lot of Malaysian folks there. They don't look nothing like me whatsoever. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't fit here. I get a little bit nervous. Now, I'm, I'm riding with a guy who, who lives there half the year, the other half of the year he lives here, and so he knows things. He's not nervous at all. I'm sweating bullets over there. And I'm just like this, and the, then the call to, to prayer comes over the loudspeaker again, and I get more and more uncomfortable. <laughs> and so... We finally round this corner, and there's a bunch of uh, different shops and stuff like that, and cars pull up in front of the shops, and, uh, you know, there's a place over here that sells food, a place over here that sells Sims for your, f- your cell phone, there's a place over here that sells clothes, and a place over here that you can get coffee or something to eat, and it's just kind of a hodgepodge of these different shops. And there's these two guys standing in front of uh, a double doors, and they, like, wave at us. <laughs> we stick out like sore thumbs, they see, like, oh, you must be the, the white folks from America. Yeah, that's us. And so they're waving and we pull in and they open up two double doors and there's a group of people on the platform up there singing praise to God in a language that I don't know. And immediately I felt peace come over me and I thought, these are my people. This is where I'm supposed to be. I no longer had any fear of everything that's taking place on the outside because I had found my brothers and sisters that I've never met before, and I'm just at home. Let me tell you, that's a gift. That's not an obligation on my calendar or something i got to do or something my wife has to nag me to get out of the bed in the morning to go to on the weekends when I just want to stay home and watch TV. No, friends, that's a family that's a gift from Jesus himself. Please don't miss that. That's good stuff. But here's the thing. In the church that Jesus has given us, Jesus has given us people to help us to grow in our faith, to be better. Jesus has actually given us spiritual mentors in the church to help us to grow in our faith. He's given you somebody to take you under their wing and say, hey, here's how you follow Jesus. Let me show you how. Now imagine this. I know sometimes over at Kapilani Park they play rugby uh, on the weekends out there and stuff like that. I love watching rugby on TV because, first of all, I don't understand American football. And some of you, that you might judge me for that, but that's fine. Um, I don't really understand all the rules of American football. But rugby is kind of like football, but like without all the rules. And so it's more appealing to me. Like there's no, there's no pads. Somebody gets tackled and they stand up and just keep on running. And it's just like, this is fun. Like, this is so fun to watch, right? Now imagine... I go play rugby at Kapilani Park and somebody picks me on their team because they're like, oh, here's a pretty good-sized guy. I bet he's good. And they choose me only to find out I don't have a clue as to what I'm doing. Like I'm just tossing the ball to anybody like, hey, I hope hope he's on my team, you know? Like I'm running after people to tackle them only to find out that I'm not supposed to tackle that guy. I'm supposed to tackle somebody else or supposed to block over here because I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just following everybody else. You know, the funny thing is, is sometimes people do Christianity that way. They just show up at church. Everybody's standing up. I guess I'll stand up now. Everybody's bowing their head for prayer, so I guess I'll bow my head. And I'm going to look around to see if anybody else is looking around. I'm going to sing these songs. I don't really know what they're saying or what they mean, but I'll just kind of like sing along or maybe hum along. And then I'll sit. I see people writing stuff down, so I'll get out a sheet of paper and doodle a little bit too so I don't feel left out. And then I think this is possibly close to being over, because he keeps saying enclosing closing about 12 times, but never actually closes, <laughs> but it's over, oh great, it's over, I guess I'll do it again next Sunday, that was fun, maybe I'm missing something somewhere, no, you're missing everything, because nobody taught you. And in the Apostle Paul, he writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, says this, and he gave some, speaking of Jesus, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. So he's given unique categories of people for a specific purpose. Here's the purpose, what he says in Ephesians 4.12. For the perfecting of the saints, that means for making Christians mature. That word perfect doesn't mean without flaw. It means to be built up or made uh, mature. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry to actually get stuff done and for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. And again, it's important to note that when God speaks in his word of building things up, he's not talking numerically. He's talking about spiritually. So Jesus has given us unique people and unique roles in every church to help you to be a better Christian and to help make the church, get this, a better church. Man, what a gift. So not only has Jesus given us a gift to the church, he's given us people inside the church to help us to be better. That's why at Huikala we place a high importance, high importance on several things. First of all, expository Bible preaching. You need to know what the Bible says. You don't need to know my opinion on it or what I think or I had a dream the other night and God spoke to me about this and it's a word I want to share with you. All that's garbage. Tell me what God said expository Bible preaching. We place a high importance on that. Every time you hear come to Hui Kala, we're going to crack the Bible and I'm going to tell you what it says. Every time without fail. Second of all, we place a high importance on teaching the Bible relationally. How do we do that? We do that through our small groups, our connection groups, where we get together. We create community together with our brothers and sisters. We pray together. We praise God together. We study the Bible together. We talk about it together. That's really important. Thirdly, we place a high importance upon discipleship personally. Discipleship is not a 14-week course where you fill in a bunch of blanks in a book. Discipleship is another Christian taking another Christian and putting their arm around them and saying, let me show you how to follow Jesus. That's a huge deal here. Huge. Why? Because I don't want you to be a Sunday morning pew sitter. We don't even have pews. we got chairs. Cheers. I don't want you to just come and take up space on Sunday morning. I want your life to be changed by the Bible. That's God's intention too. And so we need people around us to help us to do that. I'm thankful that in this church there are men that I consider mentors that I grow from, that I learn from. And let me just tell you this. If you will maintain a teachable spirit, you'll learn from everybody. I had somebody two weeks ago come up to me and say, Hey, you said this in your announcements. I think it would be better if you said that thank you. Wow, that is so helpful to me. Now, again, I could have a crummy attitude and be like, you don't tell me what to do. I'm the pastor around here. Well, that's terrible. No, I want to grow. I want to be better. I want to maintain a teachable spirit. And we should find people that can help us to grow in our faith as opposed to thinking like, oh, I got this. I don't really need that in my life. For me, uh, we, we started a brand new small group this past uh, Wednesday night. I got the opportunity to sit in a, a circle with about 10 people that I didn't really know all that well. And I enjoyed praying with them, hearing their stories, hearing their thoughts on what God's speaking to them through the Bible. Man, that was helpful and encouraging to me. And we need that in our lives. You can learn from everybody, you can learn from, from anybody that's willing to share truth. Now, because of the church being so unique and so important to Jesus, now important to us, we should regularly gather together for the purpose of worship and spiritual growth. Let me just tell you, this is a fact. The more that you are in church, the more you will grow in your faith. Fact. Let me help you. If you come on most Sunday mornings... In a given year, 12-month period, you might make it to, let's just say, 45 services. You miss a a service every other month or so. 45 services a, a, a year, you'll grow. If you hear the Bible preached and taught 45 times in a year and you apply what you hear, you'll grow. But imagine if you came every Sunday morning and you added in our Sunday evening service, which is a totally different message. Now you're coming to church twice every single week. That's 104 times every year that you'll hear the Bible opened, taught, and it will challenge you. Now imagine you show up on a small group on a Tuesday night, a Wednesday night, or a Friday night, and you hear the Bible taught to you relationally in a small group community. Now you're hearing an additional 52 times the Bible taught. And challenge. That's 156 times every year that you'll hear the Bible. Let me just tell you this if you only got 50% of what you heard, you're going to be helped by it. Guaranteed. But it's interesting, sometimes people show up every other Sunday or once a month and they say, I'm just not really getting anything out of it. You always get out of it what you put into it. And so here's what the writer of Hebrews tells us most people, Bible theologians, and I would agree with this, the author probably Paul. But here's what he says in in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse number 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now we'll pause here for just a second because here's what he says. Let us consider one another to love and provoke to, to good works. You know the funny thing sometimes about church, not funny, I would say interesting because it's not funny. It's actually really sad. Many times people choose a church based on what it does for them. Do they have a good program for my kids? I'm looking for a place that has a class for fourth grade girls only. Fourth grade girls class. That's what I want. And the teacher of that class should have a Bible college or master's degree. Oh, really? Okay, that's helpful. I want, them, I want to go to a church where they have a big playground so my kids can run around and play after church. Okay. That, that's not our church, never will be. I want a church that has really easy parking Definitely not this church, guaranteed, for sure. Big parking lot—that's what I need in a church. I've had people before who said, "Hey, pastor, you know, I really enjoyed the the church and uh, I enjoyed your preaching. and People are here super friendly, but I, I, I really need to worship with a big choir behind. Uh, yeah, that's that's not us, and it never will be. If that's what you need, then it's not going to work. But if you're looking for a place where you can learn the Bible and where you can be a part of a family that loves and provokes each other to do the right thing, I think you found the place. If you're looking for a place where you're able to come as you are and allow the Spirit of God to change you, you found the right place. So now it's a matter of not what I want, it's a matter of what Jesus wants, it's a matter of what other people need as well. You, you wanna you want to flip your Christian life on its head? Stop looking at Christianity for what it can do for you and how you can... and Use your Christianity instead on how you can impact other people. Don't show up to church five minutes before the preaching starts and wonder why you get nothing out of it. Show up 20 minutes before the service starts and find out who you can be a blessing to. Hey, folks, I saw you just walked in. You, know, you got a kid. You know where you're going? Let me take you to our children's ministry. Let me introduce your kids to their, their teacher for today. Really glad you're here today. And can you imagine what change that would do in your life if you were looking for people that you could serve? Man, that's almost like somebody who would come that didn't want to be served, but rather wanted to serve other people, right? It'll almost be like somebody who came who was really important, but he took upon himself the form of a servant. Oh, yeah, that's like Jesus, yeah. That's what Hebrews 10 is telling us. Not, and then it goes on to say, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Don't skip out on gathering together, But make sure that that's even more of a priority as we get closer to the return of Christ. Since this was written, we are now 2,000 years closer to the return of Christ. So that means this should be a high priority, us getting together and looking out for each other. It's a gift. Now, God's given us spiritual mentors through his church. Again, God has placed people in this church to help you to grow, to help me to grow. That just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean that I'm beyond any need for mentoring, beyond the need for growth, that I have arrived, that I got it all together because I don't. But God's given us people in this church to help us grow. Again, some of the best Christians I've ever met in my entire life call who we call a Baptist church their church home. Man, That's a gift to me. That's a gift to my family. I got my boys rubbing shoulders with some of the godliest men that I know. I got my daughters being influenced by some of the godliest women that I've ever met in my entire life. What? A gift. But you see, teaching can be done long distance, but mentorship requires close proximity. I can read good books and be taught. Even most colleges today have a distance learning program where you could be halfway around the world and still be a part of a classroom and still be taught. I can read books by people that are dead and gone and learn something from it. Teaching can happen anyway, even long distance, but mentoring requires close proximity. Mentoring requires me to be able to look with my eyeballs at the life of the person who's shaping me and then be able to look at me with their eyeballs and us to be able to examine one another's lives. That's what mentoring requires. Let me just tell you this. There might be some online life coaching programs that you can go through and stuff like this, but you cannot replace discipleship with time in a chair, across the table from another Christian who's going to help you to grow in your faith. You just can't replace that. You cannot replace the church and everything that God does here with watching a church service online. I'm thankful that we have a live streaming ministry. We didn't have one 18 months ago. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, uh, when are we going to start live streaming Sunday nights? I don't know. When are you going to start coming to church on Sunday nights? Uh, just th- I don't mean to be unkind, but here's the thing. We don't create our ministry for people on the internet. It's, it's a benefit that if you're sick or uh, you got the sniffles, you can stay home and watch the service. That's a benefit. That's a side benefit. But being a part of the church online is not a thing. You need to be with God's people. That's how it's been for 2,000 years, how it will be for the next 2,000 years until Christ returns. So, again, that type of mentoring requires close proximity Turn over, you would, to Second Timothy chapter two, verse number two. This is a really, really good verse. I love this. It's kind of the theme verse, if you will, for our discipleship program. Paul's writing to Timothy, and this is uh, by the way that Paul writes. So it's probably going to be the last letter that he writes to Timothy. It's definitely the last letter that he wrote to Timothy that we have access to. But as he writes to him, he tells Timothy, who's a young pastor, "Hey, these are the types of guys you need to be on the lookout for." Second Timothy two two. Here's what he says. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. Hey, Timothy, everything that you've learned from me, not just from me, but the other guys that have spent time with me. The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So he breaks it down like this. Hey, Timothy, everything that you learned from me, I want you to find guys that are faithful. And I want you to pour into their lives so that they can teach other people too. That's the biblical model for discipleship. I was talking with one of our men yesterday who really wants to be mentored and wants to grow. And we, man, we spent two hours talking about God and the Bible and our church and church family and people who want to influence, people who want to pray for, and people who want to encourage and stuff like that. And he was like, "Ah, oh, you know, pastor, how do you how do you know like what guys you want to invest in and guys that you want to, to to help?" I said, "Well, here's what I look for as a pastor. I look for guys that are already have a desire to walk with Christ." who already got a little fire burning so that I can take a can of gasoline and throw it on top so that that fire that burns rages out of control and begins to touch other people and begins to have a, a larger effect than I can have with that, with that one person. Oh, wow. That's so good. How do you come up with this stuff? I didn't. It's in the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.2. Find faithful men, pour into them so that they can teach others also. That's, that's the whole idea. So again, this idea of mentoring is a a God-given plan for you and I. You're not just supposed to figure it out as you go. The life of a Christian is not supposed to be uh, on-the-job training. You're supposed to have somebody to lead you and guide you through that process. That's why Paul says, again, in Philippians 4 9, hey, the things that you saw in me, you need to take those and do those types of things. He says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things you've received, And seen in me, commit them to other people as well. Now, here's the the deal. If you allow yourself to be shaped and mentored by someone, you need to be really, really careful with that because here's the thing. Basically what you're doing, when you allow yourself to be mentored by another person, you're handing your life over to them to allow them to shape it and mold it and create something with it. You're basically pliable and say, hey, teach me, help me to grow. If there's something that you see that's not right, I want you to help me. And we need to be very, very careful with that because we need to examine the lives and the fruit of the people that we allow to influence us. Please understand I say this with as much kindness as I can. But if you choose a church to worship in because you love the music there, Only, that's the only reason, you are a fool. That's The music is like the least important thing because you're placing yourself under the authority of a pastor who week after week, it's his responsibility to help you to shape and mold your heart and your biblical perspective of the world. That's a really big deal. And let me just tell you this, that's why The office of the pastor is such a big deal to God that he would give strict qualifications on who can and cannot be a pastor. Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you're taking notes, you should jot those down and read them because it's a big deal to God. Because influence shouldn't be taken lightly at all. And so we need to make sure that if we allow ourselves to be shaped and molded by somebody that is somebody that we know and we trust. Since the beginning of Who We Call a Baptist Church, I oversee our website and, and everything that goes along with that. If you have problems with it, see me about it. I'd be happy to help up. But I oversee our website, and then we also take a look at our analytics to find out like what are the pages that people look at the most. Most trafficked page on our website: homepage. Who We Call it. Church, Who We Call it.org, However you type it in, that's where you go. Homepage first. Second most visited page, eight years running, number two: about our pastor. Always. Why? Because anybody that knows anything asks himself, can I put myself under this person's leadership every single week of the world for the next year, two years, 10 years, for the rest of my life? Is this person someone who fits the, even the biblical qualifications of a pastor? I need to know that. Usually the third most traffic pages are like past services and media and stuff like that. But it's always been interesting to me that people want to know, hey, who's the pastor here? When people send me like, hey, uh, we're moving to, you know, wherever, Muskogee, Oklahoma, and we're looking at a church. Hey, what do you think about this church? Very first thing I do is I take a look at the homepage. You know the second page I visit? About the pastor. Because you're going to learn so much on there. So much. Why? Because this is the person that shapes hearts and minds every single week of the world. And if you go to the homepage, or you go to the About Our Pastor page, and it says, this, pa- this church is co-pastored by Tom and Sally Jones. Sally is the co-pastor. Eh. Time out. You already lost me. Why? First Timothy chapter 3. Qualifications of a pastor. Sally's not authorized to pastor, according to the Bible. Well, that's not very nice. I'm not trying to be nice. I'm trying to be biblical. The Bible says So, again, I can learn, hey, Pastor Tom champions the cause of, you know, racial justice in America. (sighs) Pastor Tom needs to go back to championing the gospel. And so you read stuff like that and you automatically know, hey, this is where this is going, this is where it's not going. And so, and then usually I'll I'll take a look at their their doctrinal statements, things like that. But you learn so much about the person who leads. That's how kind of God designed it. And let me just tell you this, I do not take it lightly that I have the privilege, opportunity, and obligation to lead you and your family well. I don't take that lightly. This is not just a a job that I fell into. I'll stand before God one day and answer for the health and well-being of every single sheep that was under this particular flock. That, that's a big deal to me, really is. And so that's why when you miss a church service and I say, hey, I miss John, on Sunday, is everything okay? Hey, just wanna let you know, I was thinking about you and praying for you. This is not me trying to get involved in your life. This is me caring for your soul. It's a big deal to me and it's a big deal to God. And hopefully, it's a big deal to you. And you won't just pick a random church that you find on the internet because they had a cool you know, Instagram or something. But there has to be substance there because you're allowing people to shape you So spiritual mentors need to be evaluated before we open ourselves up to their influence. And Paul gives four ways in this passage that you can evaluate whether or not this is someone that you should follow their leadership or not. First of all, we have to examine their teaching and discipleship. Paul says, the things that you have both learned, that word learned means to receive direct instruction from. So for them to learn, that means that Paul had to teach. So is, is Paul's teaching up to snuff? Does Paul fall in line with the scriptures the way that they should? I love Acts 17, verse number 11, speaking of the Berean church. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, but then here's what they did. They searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Hey, that was a good word. Could you show me from the Bible where I could find that? And the Bible says that they were more noble than the people in Thessalonica because they cared more about the Scriptures. See, I want you as a Christian to be a discerning Christian. I want you to be able to pick out of a lineup a church that you would put yourself or your family under the leadership of. And not just because, oh, they've got a Christian school that's the cheapest one that I can find. I guess we'll go there. Again, I want you to be discerning. What is this person teaching <laughs> There's a uh, One of our men asked, told me this past Wednesday, he said, hey, I just found out this past week that one of my coworkers is a Christian. I go, oh, man, that's awesome. I said, I said how'd the conversation go? He said, he came to me and said, hey, man, I heard that you're a Christian. He goes, I am. He was like, oh, yeah. Man, every single week I listen to, insert false teacher's name, his services online all the time. He was just like, I was like, oh. And he was like, in the opening conversation, I didn't want to be like, That guy's a false teacher. I was like, that's probably wise. Uh, And he was like, but how do I address that? How do I come back around to that? I said, there's a kind way to do it. You got to make sure you do it that way. But here's what this, the guy from our church had done. He knew this teacher. He evaluated his teachings and found them to be biblically different. And so he said, eh, not going to follow that guy. Next, we need to understand, to examine their understanding of the scripture Paul says, the things that you've learned from me, the things that you have received, that word received, as it's used by Paul throughout the rest of the New Testament, is always used in correlation with the Bible or the gospel. We see in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 2.13, for this cause we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as a word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Same word he also uses in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number one. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have also received, wherein you stand. Next, we need to examine their testimony. Here's what he says. The things that you have learned, the things you've received, and the things that you've heard. That word heard is speaking of Paul's reputation. Hey, just ask around. See what other people think. I think one of the best ways that you can can find out if this is a, the right church for you begin to ask around. Hey, what have you seen? Man, I, I love to hear people's stories, what God's done in their life here at Who We Call. I love to hear testimonies because you see how people are growing and what they're hearing and how they're applying God's word. Hey, you want to know? Ask around. And Paul says, "Hey, if, if you got questions on whether or not you should follow me, ask around." Hey, the things that you hear other people saying about me—they're true. And if you'd follow them, you'll have God's peace too. Paul even goes further in the qualifications of a pastor as found in 1 Timothy chapter three. Goes so far in verse number seven, 1 Timothy 3, seven, to say this, that the pastor should have a good reputation of people that are outside of the church. Isn't that interesting? That you and I should have such a good testimony that even unsaved people recognize the value and virtue in the way that we live our lives. Isn't that crazy? Amen. Hey, man, I don't agree with that guy and everything he says about Jesus, but he's one of the most solid guys I know. I know he'd be there for you in a split second if you ever needed him. Man, I don't believe in everything she says about Jesus, but I see the way that she loves and cares for her family, and that makes a difference. That's a big deal. Do our lives have that type of reputation? Next. We have to examine these people that we allow to shape us. We have to examine their life up close. The last thing he says is what you've seen in me. Angela and I are putting together a plan on how in the month of December we can have everybody in the church in our home for the month of December at Christmas time. We love doing stuff like that. We're trying to figure out how we're going to make it happen. It's going to be... a logistical nightmare but my wife is a logistical wizard so uh, let me just say it's gonna be awesome but here's the thing i want people to be in my home i want to spend time with them why so that they can trust me more no because they're my family i want to have family over the holidays that's what we do and here again i've been to churches before where the pastor preaches and then he gets whisked away to some room or he gets whisked away to his car where his driver's waiting you never get to see him until next sunday that's not the type of mentor you need in your life. You need somebody who knows your name, knows your story, knows your kids, knows what you're going through, prays for you on a regular basis. That's why every service I stand out on the sidewalk to the last person leaves, because I want to get to know people. I need to know my family. But you can't get to know me, you can't get to know one another if you don't spend time in close proximity. And so those are kind of the qualifications that Paul gives as far as what spiritual uh, mentoring looks like. But here's a question, do you pass the test of being a solid spiritual mentor? Could somebody follow your life and figure out how to fo- be a follower of Jesus? We had a man in the eight o'clock service who got saved last Sunday, he's back again this Sunday, and he said, he said, I've asked one of the men of our church that led me to Christ to mentor me. I really want to grow, thought, man, good for you. But could I partner him up with you and say, Hey, I want you to follow Joe. Wherever Joe goes, you go this week. Whatever Joe says this week, you say it, because this is how Christians live. Would you be ready for that? Well, you might have to give me a couple of weeks to get everything in the house cleaned up. Then clean everything up, because you need to be the type of person that shows people what Christians look like. One of the most damaging things for the cause of Christ is hypocrisy in the lives of Christians. I say that I believe this. I say you should follow those rules. I don't actually follow them, but you should. And the Bible says you should. I don't actually do it though. Hypocrisy says I'm going to put on a show that I'm a Christian, but I'm going to continue to be something else. the, the Bible, this word in the uh, the word that's used in the Bible in the New Testament for hypocrisy is one who wears a mask. You know what's going on on the inside, but you put on a fake show on the outside. It doesn't work that way with God. And hypocrisy ruins the cause of Christ. But a Christian who would be willing to stand up and say, hey, what I said yesterday was really unkind because I'm a Christian and I, don't, I shouldn't do stuff like that. Man, that's bonus points for inter- integrity and character. And we need people to see our lives up close and be able to be a mature spiritual mentor. And so Paul says in verse number nine, the things you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me, do. You see, once we know what God expects of us, we have to obey. Once you know this is what God wants you to do, you've got a choice, obedience or disobedience. My personal interpretation of the Bible, and again, if you believe differently on this, I'm not going to fight you with it. Paul says that there were some things that he did in his life that he wasn't proud of, but he did them ignorantly in unbelief. He didn't know any better, and he was just doing the best of what he had, but he did some things he wasn't proud of. I think there's probably a category for Christians that are trying to do their best but just didn't know any better. I think it's a different category than Christians who know better and still want to just do their own thing and rebel against God. Again, personal interpretation of Scripture, if you disagree, uh, we can agree to disagree. But here's what the Bible says. You want God's blessing, you want God's peace. It comes from doing the things you know to do. You see, when we rebel against God, we forfeit the peace of God. And sin always creates spiritual anxiety. If you want God's peace, do what God says. And I'll say this with my dying breath. You will never have the peace of God when you're living in rebellion to God. Ever. You cannot sin against God and have the peace of God. It just doesn't work that way. Now, when we live in disobedience... It's usually for one of three reasons. It's, first of all, Christians living in rebellion to God. You know what you should be doing. You're just not doing it for whatever reason. Maybe you think you're the exception to the rule. This doesn't apply to you, or you just want what you want. Well, that's what God's grace is for. I'll just ask him to forgive me. I just want to do what I want to do. Christians living in rebellion. You want to know how that works out? Read Hebrews chapter 12. God is going to take you behind the woodshed and wear you out until you straighten your act up. That's the Anthony King version of it. God chastens whom he loves. Chasing is not pleasant, but it brings forth good fruit in the end. So if you're a Christian living in, this, in rebellion to God, you'll never have the peace of God and everything in your life will fill off. The second type of rebellion that I often see in a Christian's life is Christians who are living in ignorance. They said no. Nobody ever taught them. My wife uh, attended church with her stepfather and her mother in a Methodist church that did not preach the Bible, like ever. She went to a Baptist revival, heard the gospel for the very first time when she was 13. She walked an aisle at a Baptist church, sat down on the front row with somebody who went through the gospel with her. She prayed to receive Christ as Savior at 13. They said, do you have a church that you attend? She said, yes. They said, just go back to that church and continue to grow. And she said, Okay. And she went back to a church that never spoke of the gospel, that never preached the Bible. Therefore, when she's 18 and goes off to college, she didn't know nothing about nothing when it came to the Bible. Now, you could look at somebody who lives a life like that and go, oh, that person is rebelling against God. They're living in wicked sin and don't know any better. Nobody ever told me. That's why discipleship, teaching and training and mentoring is so important because you have Christians who are living a life of sin, but they didn't know it was wrong. I've had Christians before that I sit down and say, hey, I heard that you guys are living together and you're not married. Yeah. Did you know that that's a sin? What? Really? Yeah, really. Let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about that. They shouldn't know any better. But oftentimes what happens is maybe it's a Christian living in rebellion. Maybe it's a Christian who doesn't know any better. Or maybe it's just an unsaved person Living like an unsaved person. Maybe they're not saved. Maybe they continue to live in sin because they never had power over sin. And let me just tell you if you get nothing else today, get this. You are a sinner. All of us have sinned against the Holy God, myself included. There's not a person in this room that's never sinned, and we couldn't stop sinning if we wanted to. And because of our sin, we have earned ourselves a place in hell. If there is no outside intervention in your life, let me be ridiculously clear. When you die, you will go to hell. You will pay for your own sin. And there is nothing that you yourself can do to change that other than pay the price that's due for your sin. And the Bible says the, sin, the payment is death. But if someone else can pay for you, you can skip hell, go to heaven. You can have your sins forgiven. But here's the problem. I can't pay for your sins. I have my own sins to pay for. There's not a church in the world that can pay for your sins. You can't be baptized to wash away your sins. The only person that can pay for your sins is Jesus Christ. And Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. That he was willing to come and die on the cross as payment for our sins. Jesus came to die for the sole purpose of paying for our sins. That's why next month we're going to have a blowout Christmas celebration. Not because of sugar cookies, and I love sugar cookies. Not because of candy canes, and I love candy canes. Not because of Santa Claus, but because it's the birth of Christ who came to die for our sins. That's huge. But here's the thing. Jesus suffered, bled, and died in our place. We were supposed to die, but he died for us. But you've got to believe that, and you have to receive that. There has to be a point in time where you are saved or born again. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse number 3, No man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You need to be saved. There has to be a time, a date, a place in your life where you have received Christ as Savior, where your sins have been forgiven. And that's not joining our church, becoming a Baptist, getting baptized, going to a class. That's about saying... In your heart and with your mouth, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe that He's the only way to heaven. And I'm asking Him to save me and forgive me of my sins. And boom, just like that, all the wrong you've ever done in your entire life is gone. And you become a child of God. You need that. There's never been a time in your life where you've been saved. Let today be that day. Don't hit the double doors in the back without knowing for sure your sins are forgiven. Because God's best is always found in obedience to his ways. You want the good stuff that God has to offer? I promise you, you can find it if you're just obedient to his ways. Just do what he tells you to do. And oftentimes, I try to explain this to people and they just can't connect the dots. Well, I know, but if I if I teach my kids to grow up and and love Jesus and live by the Bible, they're just going to go their own way when they get older. So I'll just let them make their own decisions when they're teenagers. No, the Bible says, "Train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he won't depart from it." It's our job as parents to shape our kids to love Jesus at an early age. Well, I don't know if that works in today's society. The Bible always works. You want God's best? It's found in obedience girls that want to date some unsaved guy because that's just how things are these days. It's hard to find a Christian guy. You can't go against God's ways and expect the good stuff. It doesn't work that way. You want to be sexually promiscuous outside of wedlock. It doesn't work that way. You want to chase after what the world has as far as success or status or money or pornography and think you're going to find fulfillment. It doesn't work that way. You're actually forfeiting The peace of God and joy to chase after those things only to find out later that you'll be greatly disappointed. I'm saving you the heartache. Just do it God's way. Obedience, holiness, and righteousness always produce the peace of God. Always. And you show me somebody who does not have the peace of God, there's generally a problem somewhere. And again, if we trace back up, Philippians 4, maybe they're worrying too much, they have too much anxiety Maybe they haven't prayed and given it to God. Maybe they haven't sought God's release from this anxiety that they're dealing with. But whatever's happened, they forfeited the peace of God. Maybe they haven't done the things that they know to do. Therefore, you forfeit the peace of God. Four final thoughts today and we're done. Four enemies of spiritual stability. You want God's (laughs) peace. You want to be spiritually stable. Here's four things that ruin it every single time. First of all, the wrong thoughts. Philippians 4.8 tells us that. Here's the things you should think on. The things that are true, the things that are honorable, the things that are right in the sight of God, the things that are attractive to God, those are the things that you focus on. Those are the things that you think on. But the wrong thoughts steal your peace, they steal your joy, and they lead you off track. Second thing that's an enemy of the spiritual stability is the wrong influences. You're hearing the wrong things talking in your ear. And some of you would do best to shut off Fox News or shut off CNN or shut off your podcasts that you listen to because you got some wrong influences that are taking your heart and your mind somewhere where they shouldn't go. And that's, again, we need to be very careful with the media we allow in our lives television, TV shows, movies, things we listen to on the internet, things we watch on the internet because those things speak to our heart. Wrong influences will steal your joy and steal your spiritual stability. Next, wrong relationships. These are relationships that don't lead you closer to Christ. They actually take you away. And let me just tell you this. My heart and yours are malleable. They're moldable. And if I spend a lot of time with someone, they're either shaping my heart or I'm shaping theirs. It's not just we both remain the same. And at what point I realize that me spending time with another person trying to bring them to Christ is actually causing me to be more like the world, I need to be really, really careful and probably take a big step back. If this person is not helping me to be more like Jesus and love Jesus more, but actually causing me to want to sin or to have a soft view of sin, I need to be super careful of that because I can't afford it. Like, oh, well, the guy that I hang out with, he's not really a Christian, and he drinks a lot, but I don't, and he cusses a lot, but I don't. So it's not really that big of a deal, really, because like in six months from now, you might not be saying the words that he's saying, but you're thinking them in your mind. You might not be drinking with him, but you think to yourself, well, alcohol is not really that big of a deal. I mean, some people can probably do it like this guy. It's not a problem for him. And then we begin to allow our heart to be shaped by somebody that never should have shaped us. Be careful of the relationships. And some of us have some relationships in our life that we'd just be better off just cutting off and moving on. You said, well, that's not very nice. I'm not trying to be nice. I'm trying to be biblical. And if those things influence your life away from Christ, you need to be super careful. Look, You and I both need to surround ourselves with people that will help us take our Christianity to the next level, take our Christ-likeness to the next level, not take us further away from it. I want to be encouraged in my faith, not detracted from my faith. That's the kind of people I need in my life. That's the kind of people you need in your life. And the last thing that will steal your joy and steal your spiritual stability is duplicitous living. Oh, I'm going to be this way on Sunday, but I'm going to be a different way on Monday. Or even worse, I'm going to be this way on Sunday morning. And I'm a different person by Sunday at noon. Angela, I was talking with a young lady several years ago that was struggling in her faith. And she had told my wife and I, you know, it's all smiles when they're at church. But the second we get in the car, she said the smiles come off and it's a different person for the rest of the week. Everything that you see at church is just fake. It's a put on. And that hurt my heart. It really did. And here's the problem. It hurt this young lady's faith. She was questioning her faith because what she saw in her parents wasn't the real deal. So we got to be super careful. Let me just tell you this. The people that can sniff out a phony, duplicitous living quicker than anything is kids. (laughs) They see really quickly. Hey, you just said that, but you're not actually doing that. I remember my dad as a kid. My dad loves Jesus, and he's one of my, my heroes. He was the best man at my wedding. My dad's got a gang of problems like anybody else, but, but I love my dad to death. I remember as a kid while he's standing outside smoking cigarettes, him saying, Anthony, don't ever smoke. Okay. And again, I remember being nine, ten years old. Now, mind you, this was a long, long time ago. My dad giving me a $5 bill and said, hey, go in and buy me a pack of cigarettes. And I'd run in the grocery store with a $5 bill and lay him up there and said. I need a pack of Salem's, take them back out of the car. And I hand them to my dad and he said, don't ever, ever buy cigarettes for yourself. Okay, got it. Don't buy cigarettes for yourself. But I can buy cigarettes for you, right? Right. Okay. That doesn't make any sense at all. And I remember as a kid just being conflicted. You can tell your kids, oh, yeah, you need to love Jesus. You need to follow the Bible. But we don't have to do that at home. Just just you as a kid. Man, they're going to sniff that out super quick. Oh, the the church is super important. It's important that we gather together with God's people and worship Jesus on a Sunday morning. Okay, are we going to church this Sunday? No, the football game's on. We'll go next Sunday. Oh, wait, I thought church was super important, but it's not anymore. He said, well, that's kind of harsh. I'm sharing with you my personal experience. Here's what happened. My wife and I decided that we're going to start going to church, and we would go to church casually whenever we felt like it. And our son Thatcher, who's 27 now, was five at the time maybe? He came in our room on a Sunday morning and he said, hey guys, are we are going to church this Sunday? On Sunday morning. And I said, no, bud, we're tired last night. We stayed up way too late watching TV, so we're going to hit it next week. And with childlike innocence, he says, oh, so you don't have to go to church if you're tired, huh? <laughs> well... <sighs> and, and again, I praise God for a godly wife that can speak truth. My wife said to me, That day later, she said, hey, look, I'm not telling you what to do, but look, we either need to do this or not because it's sending the wrong message. And I'm embarrassed that as a man, I needed my wife to tell me that, but I needed my wife to tell me that. And you know what I said? I think you're right. Let's just do it. And she said, okay. We made a decision that Sunday afternoon that we'd skip church. Every time from here on out that they're having something at church, our family's going to be there. And let me just tell you this. After two decades, that has brought forth so much good fruit in my life. But you know what was stealing good fruit? Duplicitous living. You can't afford it, and I can't either. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today, you don't know for sure that you're saved. Going to church is not going to improve your life. It's not going to make you better. It's not going to pay for your sins. You need to be saved. You need to be born again. If that's you today, please see me after the service. See another person at our church here after the service. And don't leave here until you know for sure that you're saved. But for those of us that are Christians, I hope you're being sharpened and influenced by other people, and I hope you have the opportunity to be a positive impact in other people's lives as well, because that's what we're called to do. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.